Psalms are a great uh, gift to the church, as in Psalms like that one, we are uh, taught to, to give voice to some of the sorts of questions that we would not uh, think or dare to ask on our own. Uh, we see something of the same in the book of Job, sixth sermon uh, this morning through the book of Job. We'll read Job chapters 9 and 10. If you're visiting with us, uh, Job is, is just before Psalms and Proverbs. Um, up uh, until this point in the book, Job in chapters 1 and 2 has lost his 10 children, uh, lost his health as his body is covered with sores and boils. He's lost his livelihood. His friends at the end of chapter 2 come to comfort him. Uh, but then after hearing his lament in chapter 3, they begin to chastise him. Uh, first Eliphaz in chapters 4 and 5, and then Job replies to him in 6 and 7, and uh, Bildad responds in chapter 8. Uh, both he and Eliphaz essentially saying, the innocent never perish, but God is just. The death of your children, therefore, must be because either you or they have sinned. And so their prescription is get right with God unless you want the same to happen to you. Get right with God unless you want your situation to grow even worse. And so Job replies here in chapters 9 and 10 in, uh, as with most of his speeches, what begins as a response to his friends and then uh, turns into a lament directed to God. Job uh, chapters 9 and 10, beginning at 9 verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades and the chamber of the south. He does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. How then can I answer him? And choose my words to reason with him. For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I, I, I could beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a matter of strength, indeed, he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. I am blameless, yet I, I do not know myself. I despise my life. 
It is all one thing. Therefore, I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? And now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They pass by like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and wear a smile. I'm afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and do not let dread of him terrify me that I would speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile in the counsel of the wicked? Do you, do you have eyes of flesh? Or do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man? That you should seek for my iniquity and search out for my sin, although you know that I am not wicked. And there is no one who can deliver from your hand. Your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity, yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray that you have made me like clay, and will you turn me again into dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. These things you have hidden in your heart, I, I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me. It will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I'm wicked, woe to me. Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery. If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion, and again you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes and wars are ever with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would not have been as, or I, I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease. Leave me alone that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return to the land of darkness. In the shadow of death, a land as dark 
as darkness itself, as the shadow of death without any order, where even the light is like darkness. Congregation, in one of his books on Job, Christopher Ash says there is a pain for the believer that gives suffering a unique sharpness. To be sure, common uh, suffering is the, the common experience of all men. All sorts of people get ill. All sorts of people are, are diagnosed with cancer. All kinds of people are touched by war and famine and earthquakes. And yet he says, suffering touches the believer with a sharper and uniquely piercing pain. For the worshiper truly believes that God is sovereign. He or she really believes that the living God is in control of this world. And so when suffering comes, it must ultimately be God who in some sense sends it. And so it's not just that suffering hurts, but it's, it's more than this. It is the conviction that it's God who is in some sense doing the hurting. That's where Job finds himself in chapter 9, grappling with the sovereignty of God. As he looks around at his life and sees the, the crumbled ruins of his kingdom, the dead bodies of his children, the empty fields in which his animals once grazed, the ash heap in which he now lays and knows, all things work according to the counsel of God's will, that even the lot is cast into the lap and its every decision is from the Lord. And so even his immense suffering is in some sense from God's hand. Many of us have found ourselves too grappling with the sovereignty of God. If, if God could have prevented me from getting in that accident, why didn't he? If God could have, have prevented that natural disaster, why didn't he? If God could have prevented the, the death of my child or the death of my spouse or death of my father or mother, if God could have prevented that diagnosis, why didn't he? We can sometimes find great comfort in the sovereignty of God, but Ash is right, we can also be troubled by it. As we know that God could have prevented our suffering, but didn't. This is where Job is. And so throughout these two uh, chapters, we, we basically see two things that Job does. We see Job longing for peace with the sovereign God, and we see Job lament the lack of a mediator between him and this sovereign God. Job longs for peace with the sovereign God, and Job laments the lack of a mediator between him and God. I want to look at those two things this morning. Uh, first, Job's longing for peace with the sovereign God. And we see this longing in the first couple of verses where Job cries out in response to Bildad's point from chapter 8 that God is not unjust and says, truly, I know that it's so. I know that God is just. I'm not disagreeing with you, Bildad. But how can I be at peace with him? 
because it feels like I'm not righteous in his sight. I know that I'm blameless. Uh, Job will go on to say that in in, uh, verses 20 and 21, again in 10 verse 7. I know that I've not done anything to deserve this, but how can I make that case before God? For if one wished to contend with him, verse 3, this is, um, this is sort of courtroom language. If one wished to appeal his case, he could not answer God one time in a thousand. He could not say or do anything that would cause God to second guess the wisdom of his decree. Job understands that he is but a creature and that God is the one who possesses all wisdom. And so he understands he cannot do anything to cause God to change his ways. For God is sovereign. That's what Job goes on to describe in verse 4 and following, where notice he doesn't seek to comfort himself as some do in suggesting that God is not sovereign. He does not suggest that God desires to, but is somehow unable to prevent his suffering but he holds on to the truths he has been taught about God, that God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. That as the sovereign over all, he possesses a deep, inscrutable wisdom in his decree. And that in the way he carries that decree out, he is strong in power, removing mountains and overturning them in his anger, verse 5. He is completely and utterly sovereign, able to shake the earth out of its place and cause its pillars to tremble, able to cause the sun either to rise or not rise, in this case, not to, as Job's life is filled with darkness. God is sovereign over the waves of the sea in both their beauty and also in their terror. He is sovereign over the stars of the heavens, the the constellations that he names. He is uh, not only the creator of the earth, but he is the sustainer of it, the one who governs the whole universe, who does great things past finding out wondrous things beyond number. And those great things past finding out those wondrous things beyond number, Job says include sometimes the sun not rising. Include sometimes the waves crashing over you. And so Job is grappling with the sovereignty of a God who sometimes allows calamity. Who he wishes he could say to him, what are you doing? Verse 12, but, but he knows that no creature can. He speaks of God um, taking or snatching away, verse 12, as he's done with all of Job's possessions, all of Job's health, all of Job's children. And says, who could possibly hinder him or challenge the rightness of what he's doing? He's God. Job is grappling not only with the sovereignty of God's providential decree, but also with the fact that he is without equal. And so Job cannot contend with him as a man in court. He cannot challenge him in what he's doing. He cannot prove that he himself is blameless and doesn't deserve this treatment. But verse 13, God will not withdraw his anger. It feels to Job as if God is angry with him. 
It feels to Job as if God is treating him as one of the allies of the proud, or, or as the ESV translates that, the helpers of Rahab, a symbol of, of chaos, a sort of storybook monster. Job says, he's treating me like them, like the, the helpers of Rahab assistance in in chaos and evil. So verse 14, how could I answer him? How could I choose my words so as to reason with him? Do you hear in Job chapter 9 how Job finds God hard in his transcendence, that he is completely other? That, That Job finds him hard in his omnipotence, hard in the wisdom of his decree. And so it complains in verse 15, even if I were righteous, I could not answer him. All I could do is beg for mercy from the one who judges me. Which he confesses he actually doesn't even believe would do anything. For verse 16, he says, if I called and he answered me, I wouldn't believe that he was listening to my voice. Both because of his greatness and Job's smallness, and also because of the way he's been treating him. Crushing him with a tempest, verse 17, like that strong wind, that tempest that knocked down the roof of his children. Multiplying his wounds without cause. That's what Job says. And that's actually the same thing that God says in chapter 2 when he says to Satan, you have incited me against him without cause. There is nothing in Job that has elicited this treatment where he is not allowed to catch his breath but is hit with wave after wave after wave and is filled with bitterness. He speaks in in verses 20 to 22 of his blamelessness and says that God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. And he says in verse 23 that God laughs at the plight of the innocent which we know is not true. But to Job, he doesn't feel any sympathy from the sovereign of the universe. Why, Job asked, does he allow this to happen? And we could certainly pick apart Job's words in in verses 23 and 24. Yes, he doesn't have the whole picture. Yes, he's wrong. God does not cover over the faces of, of judges on earth and cause them to look the other way at evil. He is not callous towards suffering, laughing at the plight of the innocent, but is very much compassionate and sympathetic. But Job is speaking out of his anguish. And as we read this, we don't want to fall into the same error as his friends, picking apart his words in a, in a cold and clinical way. Uh, William Henry Green said of Job's words, these are not the utterance of considerate reflection nor the expression of deliberate views. The sentences are not to be nicely weighed and their propriety or impropriety passed upon as though spoken in moments of calm repose, but they must be judged from the situation of Job. Now, that is not to say that anything goes when things are not well, that we can say whatever we want. It's, it's not to excuse Job when he says God mocks the calamity of the innocent. But it is to say we miss the point if our study of this passage fixates on what is wrong with Job's speech when God, in the end, rebukes his friends for doing just that. 
forgetting that these questions are not armchair questions, but more like wheelchair questions. He is crying out in anguish and bitterness. And part of what makes his anguish so bitter is that he understands the sovereignty of God, that Job 42.11, God has sent this. And yet in the midst of it all, he deeply desires to be right with this God. We'll see that in, in chapter 10, that his main lament is that he has lost all sense of the loving relationship with God he once knew. That's what he desires above all, and it's, it's the main thing that troubles him. Job's deepest longing is not the restoration of his property. Job's deepest longing is not the restoration of his health, but the restoration of his relationship with God, which he has lost all sense of. And so he's crying out for God, yes, in some sense, kicking and screaming at him and saying things that are not true. But he's doing so as one who loves God and deeply desires to have his relationship with him restored. But he knows, or rather he doesn't know, how that's going to happen. And so as we we move into the next section of of chapter 9, Job sort of considers his options going forward. And in verse 27, he says, well, I I suppose I could just uh, forget my complaint. I suppose I could just put off my sad face and, and wear a smile and pretend everything's okay. But of course, that would be a denial of the truth. Everything's not okay would not honor the emotions that that God has given me, and it would fail to reckon with the fact that I am not just suffering physically and relationally, but also from the absence of felt communion with God. And so he determines, no, I, I can't just put on a happy face. It wouldn't be right for me to put on a happy face. And so he says next, well, I suppose then I could wash myself, I suppose I could try to come up with some sin to repent of. Perhaps I could even perform some ritual act to demonstrate my my repentance and, and demonstrate my purity. But that too would be a lie. And it wouldn't do any good anyway, for I would still be reckoned as filthy. And so finally, in verses 32 and following, he suggests yet one more possibility. It says, if only... There, there were some way for God to be a man like me. If only there were a, a mediator who, who would somehow lay his hand on both God and on me, to, to lay his hand on both of us, then there could be peace between us. And Job is here on to something. For the elimination of suffering in this world, for the the perfect restoration of a relationship between God and man, for perfect communion with him, it is necessary that one should assume his humanity and at the same time be God. That is necessary in order to mediate this relationship between them. Job is here speaking as a prophet. Throughout the book so far, he has been a first-person depiction um, in his life of what will happen to the suffering servant to come, but now he speaks of him in the third person, voicing his own need for that mediator to come and lay his hand on both God and man. 
for that mediator to come who would have affinity with both parties, remaining faithful and, and holy and just and sovereign like God, and yet also like a man, his neighbor, sympathizing with his plight. G.K. Campbell Morgan said, Job is looking for someone who could lay his hand on God with the authority of partnership and fellowship, being one with God, but who could also lay his hand on him with that same authority because of his own humanity. Because he knows human nature, not merely with the intellectual knowledge of a deity, but with the experiential knowledge of the incarnation. Beloved, you see how Job's longing for a mediator, though still clouded with doubt, will find its full and complete answer in the one of our humanity, yet himself one with God, who will become 1 Timothy 2.5, our only mediator, laying his hand with ultimate authority on God and with ultimate sympathy on man, and bringing the two into union, reconciling them and giving peace. And Job hardly yet knows of what he speaks. But this hope that that is given a little flicker in Job 9, 32, and 33 will grow in chapter 16 where where he longs for one to plead his case with God as a man pleads for his friend. And then eventually in chapter 19 where he speaks of his Redeemer who will stand on the earth. Job, as it says in James chapter 5, is speaking as a prophet, prefiguring the gospel not only in his life, in depicting the suffering of the Savior to come, but also in his prophetic longing, in the words that he cries out of his desperation. God brings Job to this anxiety of soul that we see in chapter 9 so that he might write the prophetic revelation of Christ that he does in verses 32 and 33. Out of Job's suffering is birthed this sweet revelation of the coming Savior who would place his hand on both God and man. That's what we have at the end of of chapter 9. And Job says, if such a one existed, then God would take away his rod from me and the dread of him would no longer terrify me. I would be able to speak to him and not fear. I would be able, as the author of Hebrews will say, to enter into his presence boldly. But at this point, Job concludes that's just wishful thinking. And his last words in verse 35, and he says, but it is not so with me. And so his prophetic longing turns to lament in chapter 10, for apart from this mediator for whom he longs, there is no hope. And so in the rest of our our time together, we look at chapter 10, where Job laments the lack of a mediator between him and God. To be sure, it's, it's not only this that he's lamenting, but if Job knew the truth, of what he had said in verse 33, then I'm not sure Job 10 verse 1 would read quite the way it does. 
where he says, my soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in bitterness of soul. Ultimately, this bitterness of soul comes from his longing for peace with the sovereign God, but lack of a mediator to provide that peace and convince him that God does not laugh at the plight of the innocent, but sympathizes with them. And so he goes on in, in chapter 10 of essentially a four-part complaint that is framed by four questions Job asks of God. First, in verses 2 and 3, he basically asks, Lord, is your treatment of me consistent with your goodness? Does it seem good to you that you should oppress and despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? He's saying, is it consistent with your goodness to allow the wicked to prosper and to despise the work of your hands? Job is appealing to the goodness of God in creating him and redeeming him and saying, is this really consistent with who I know you to be? Here Job is is taking his uh, less refined laments from chapter 9 and wording them with a bit more tact. Does it seem good to you to oppress? And he voices a second question in verses 4 to 7, essentially the same question that he asked back in chapter 7. It says, why are you searching after me? Why are your eyes always on me as if you are searching for sin? Again, he's crying out and, and voicing an honest question to God. And here we see better than in chapter 9, a proper model for lament, bringing your questions to God as the psalmist did in Psalm 77, even in our pain, coming to him as an act of faith. Job is bringing his questions to God because he is is wrestling and he still believes within himself that there is a God in heaven who listens and who cares. And so even his lament that we see in verses 4 to 7 is an act of faith. And he voices in verses 8 to 17 a a third question, basically saying, Lord, did you create me just for this? Don't you remember how your hands fashioned me and made me? An intricate unity, it says in verse 8. Don't you remember verse 9, how you made me like clay? Or he says, just as as a cheesemaker pours out the milk and curdles the cheese, don't you remember how the sperm and the egg came together when you formed me in the womb? And then when you clothed me with skin and with flesh and knit me together, don't you remember? This is is what he's saying in in verses 8 to, to 12. Speaking somewhat anachronistically, it's like he's taking Psalm 139, which we sang earlier, and pleading every word of it in God's face. Don't you remember? Don't you remember how I am fearfully and wonderfully made, how you knit me together in the womb? And then verse 12, how you granted me life and favor and how your care preserved my spirit. So he's appealing not only to God's grace to him in creation, but also in sustaining him throughout his life and being a gracious God and father to him. And that word he uses in verse 12 for favor um, is is, um, a steadfast love or hesed, um, covenant love, loyal love. It's that word that, that comes up so often in the Old Testament. 
It's almost like, like a spouse pleading on the former days that they have known. Don't you remember your loyal love, your faithful care? He's appealing to the grace of God. He's appealing to God's grace in creation, his care in providence throughout Job's life. And he cannot reconcile his former experience of God's faithful love with the present circumstances of his life. Again, this is the same thing that the psalmist did in Psalm 77, where he asks, Lord, have you forgotten to be gracious? Have you shut up your tender mercies? Will you be favorable to us no more? Has your mercy ceased forever? Job is asking these same questions. He's saying, didn't you, in the very act of creating me, certainly in the steadfast love that you have shown me throughout my life, didn't you commit yourself to me? And so he's asking then, is it not out of character then for you to increase your indignation toward me and not acquit me of my sin or see my misery? Job is pleading with God for a restoration of the loyal love he once knew. And then at the end of chapter 10, basically says, if you won't let me know that loyal love again, then why don't you just let me die? Verse 18, either before I was ever born or verse 21, maybe you could just leave me alone now and let me have a little peace before I go to the grave, before I go to the land of darkness and the shadow of death. So much like chapter 3 and much like chapter 7, Job's lament in Job 10 ends in the darkness of the grave. Because that is the only hope for sufferers if there is no mediator. Now, thankfully, Job's little flicker of faith and the possibility of a mediator that we saw at the end of chapter 9, thankfully, that little flicker of faith will continue to grow in chapter 16 and especially chapter 19 where he looks forward even to a hope beyond the grave. But apart from that mediator and redeemer in whom he will confess his faith, there is no light in the darkness and Job 10 would be our reality. Thanks be to God, he has sent that mediator for whom Job longs. Thanks be to God, he has sent that mediator for whom Job longed, who could put his hand on both God in his divinity and man in his suffering humanity and plead our case. Not on the basis of our righteousness or or Job's righteousness, but of his as he is the only one who could say in truth, Job 10 verse 7, you know that I am not wicked. You know that I have not sinned. And, and though he was knit together in the womb uh, by his father, would indeed enter into a state of darkness where he lost all sense of God's steadfast love and was marked for iniquity not his own. He would enter into the hell of Job 9 and 10 so that Job and you and I could have an answer to Job 9 verse 2. How can man be right with God? How can he be at peace with him and know not his anger but his smile? 
by Christ entering into the hell of Job 9 and 10, suffering for sinners, so that on the basis of his agony, whatever taste of hell we may endure on earth will never become the eternal hell we deserve if you trust in him. And so Job 9 and 10, for any gathered here who do not know Christ, Job 9 and 10, for any gathered here who have suffered, for any gathered here who have struggled with with the sovereignty and goodness of God in light of the suffering in the world and the suffering in your life, Job 9 and 10 is an invitation to repent and believe. To behold the one mediator between God and man, the one to whom Job's suffering points in shadow form and the one who is his savior, Jesus. The answer to our struggling with the sovereignty of God, who even though he permits suffering in this life, does not stand aloof from it, but enters into it in his son to save us from it. And even though we may sometimes feel like Job in in his sad, dark lament, may know that because there is a mediator and redeemer, no matter how dark our grappling with the problem of pain in this life may be, there is a light that illumines the darkness, and his name is Jesus. So come to him in faith and repentance. Trust him in the midst of your pain. God has proven that whatever you face in this life, it is not proof that he's against you, but he has proven that he is for you the cross of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ who suffered in our place, who answers for us the question of whether indeed the sovereign God cares about the suffering of his children. Lord, we see in Jesus that you do. That does not change the fact that our sorrows in this life sting. It doesn't change the effect of disease or death. But it does prove to us in the midst of it that you care for us, that you are for us. And that even in our suffering as our all-wise sovereign, you have a purpose. That purpose may be in moving us to cry out for our Redeemer. That purpose may be like Job in stomping the serpent beneath our feet through faithful suffering. It may be like Job in showing the world around us that you are worth worshiping even through tears. Or we may never know what your purpose is. But what we do know, Lord, is that your steadfast love has not ceased but is shown forth in that darkest of all places, the cross of Christ. Help us to believe because of that cross, that you were for us.